Hello, uh, welcome to Back Chat. Uh, sadly, I'm on my own this week with no will. Um, but my guest this week is ex Lib Dem MEP uh, Caroline Voden. Here now with more news, debate, and opinion. To get straight into it, you're a bureau chief at Reuters, uh, where you cover the Balkans war. Um, during this time, you interviewed the president of Croatia and the leader of the independence movement. I mean, how was that? Yes, Franjo Tudjman. He was not a very nice man. And he didn't enjoy being interviewed by a Reuters journalist either because he very much had his own version of the truth and it didn't really match my version of the truth. So I went to the presidential palace to interview him and it had been something we'd been trying to do for a long, long, long time. And eventually he caved in and said, okay, he would be interviewed by us. I can't remember now what the actual event was or what the topic was but um so this was post-war this was when croatia was trying to get back on its feet and off i went to the presidential palace with a tv cameraman and a, a translator obviously i did speak croatian but not well enough to interview the president and um so we did the interview and then we released a story and that evening on the national news, I was, my photo was on the screen with the words um, enemy of the state <laughs> underneath. And he branded me which is just about the only Croatian I remember now, which means enemy of the state, Caroline Voden, Caroline Doughty then, because I had um, reported the truth and um, he didn't really like it. <laughs> wow. So we weren't just... friends. Yeah, evidently, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you recognise similarities between his sort of nationalist rhetoric and the debate around Brexit? Because when I hear enemy of the state, I immediately think of the tabloid press going after the judges last, last year or the year before and, the, and the, calling them the enemy yeah. of the people, so Gina Miller, etc. Yeah, so worryingly, I, I think there really are some similarities and I do see similarities. I think I think I have to sort of qualify that by saying that obviously we have never been, well, there was a civil war, wasn't there? But that was, I don't know how many hundreds of years ago, um, you know, but it's been a long time since this, you know, we've been at war in Britain and obviously in the former Yugoslavia, there's a lot of history there between the Serbs and the Croats and the Bosnians. And, um, you know, you don't have to go that far back in history to, 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 you know, to see that when they were sort of fighting each other before. So, so we are in a different, a different situation here. But I think one of the worrying similarities is the media. And one of the things that happened in the Balkans in the 90s was that the, the media kind of stoked the tensions. There were always underlying tensions between the different national groups there. And the media sort of stoked those tensions slowly but surely over a period of years until eventually it just became a sort of tinder cinder pot whatever the expression is um and it, and it caught fire um and i think here i think i think we really need to sort of pay attention to the fact that we really don't have a, f a free and fair press here you know we have privately owned media with heavily entrenched political opinions and you know that tabloid media has spent 40 years building up the anti-EU rhetoric and, and the Telegraph, you know, Johnson himself writing those columns from Brussels. I mean, they were literally made up, you know, the number of myths and lies that have been in our papers over decades is astonishing when you dig into it and find out how much rubbish was written about the EU. And, and, and that has been really, really dangerous. And I think 
I, I think we do need to pay far more attention to that. And all you need to do is look at Liverpool, who have not really bought the sun for 25 years since Hillsborough, and they voted at 58% for Remain in 2016. Now, I would say that there's probably a correlation there. Um, and I think, I, I, I don't know how we change it, because as a, you know, these newspapers are privately owned by individuals. You can't take them off them. But I think I would, I would like to see a much more robust national broadcaster that doesn't sort of bend to, to the agenda as much. And um, I, I don't think there will be civil war here. I don't think we'll rise up against each other and be killing our neighbours and setting fire to their houses and, you know, doing the awful things that happened in the Balkans. But I, I yeah, I think the tendencies are there to, you know, to stoke that nationalism. Yeah, I think you're, you are right, which is a little bit, I would say alarming. Um, I think it's very worrying. Yeah. I think what we need is a much bigger national conversation about sort of mutual respect rather than division. You know, I think there's too much them and us in, in the rhetoric that, that we hear, you know, from the government, from the media, there isn't enough conversation around sort of trying to all pull together. I think it's been as hard for Remainers as it has been for Leavers. And somehow or other, we have to, I mean, I, I, you know, I did think at the beginning of coronavirus that actually all of a sudden it didn't matter if you were a Lever or Remainer, which did feel quite astonishing after the last four years that we, and especially as we literally just come out of Europe and suddenly we were all in something together and it did feel like it was going to be a bit different. But I, I feel that, you know, now we're, reaching the end of the transition period suddenly that's all rearing up again you know the lever and remainer thing and that's going to be mixed with another you know with possibly a winter lockdown because of coronavirus and it's a right old mess really isn't it and i don't see that our prime minister is i i don't feel he's coming out with the right messages to unite the country i think he's just causing more division and more resentment and more anger and more frustration um so I don't really see it improving in the short run. Your pathway into becoming an MEP. Um, yeah. I mean, I find that very, I'd like to know how that happened. I mean, you were um, international journalist. We covered across Amsterdam, uh, Zagreb, Bosnia, Belgrade, um, ex-bureau chief at Reuters. Um, you then, or maybe not straight after, but you ran a craft uh, brand in Devon, um, yeah. part of the team that established Just Giving. And then you worked for resettlement charity, if I'm, if yeah. I'm correct. Um, and then following that, you kind of entered politics, uh, parliamentary candidate in 2017, and then an yeah. MEP in 2019. I mean, how, how does that happen? What changed? Okay, kind of so in you? a nutshell, I... Um, so I was, a, I was a journalist for 10 years and travelled around a lot and had a fantastic time. And then I had children and it didn't wasn't really compatible, so I left. And... Um, I moved to Devon and so I had been sort of writing and editing in various forms and guises for a very long time. And then I got a bit fed up with that and I just was was tired of being at home in front of a computer, you know, and wanted to sort of be around people. So I opened my a business in uh, my small town where I live and um, I've always been really interested in making things um, and been quite creative. So the idea of the business was there's a place in Bath, which is very similar actually. Um, and I can't remember the name of it now, but we did workshops um, and 
we had a shop so we taught people to do all sorts of things you know knitting and crochet and making lampshades and quilting and dressmaking and pattern cutting and to quite a high standard we had I had lots of sort of very experienced professionals who came in and did did lots of classes and but basically what we ended up with after five years was a place where women mainly women would come and 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 sit around the table and, and make things and and talk and the conversations were often very very political and and we ran the shop during the period over the eu referendum so in the run-up to the referendum and then the day of the referendum itself um, and then for an, the business was open for about another nine or ten months after that so it became quite political during that period and i live in a very remain bubble in a very leave area um so I, I just got quite fired up by it all and you know was very invested and um obviously absolutely gutted when when the referendum happened so I stayed up all night that night and the morning after I thought I've got to do something about this and you know it was not good enough to just just complain and moan and shout at the television you know I, it's time I got involved so I felt kind of guilty that I hadn't been more involved and felt that I should have done more and that people like me all over the country should have done more because it wouldn't have taken much to have just tipped it the other way so I joined the Lib Dems and um and got involved with them and then so that was 2016 and basically was had my arm twisted to stand as a paper candidate for council in 2017 and then I stood in a no hope general election seat um just to kind of see whether I enjoyed it you know to it as a sort of trial run really it was a seat that we would never have any chance of winning massive massive Tory majority um and I really enjoyed that and then um so my business closed and I had a new job and then we fast forward to sort of April last year, March, April last year, and the, and the party sent around an email saying, look, it looks like we're going to have this European election and we're going to need some candidates. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, I'd never really thought about being an MEP before. And I realised that I had a lot of skills that I could offer to the job. You know, I speak several languages and I've spent a lot of time in Europe and I, I sort of understand the issues and felt very, very passionately about it. So I thought, well, I'll, put my hat in the ring and see what happens and <laughs> never ever expected to come out top of the selection list um and then suddenly you know when I was number one on the list that was when my husband and I actually googled to see how you would commute from Totnes to Strasbourg <laughs> <laughs> which I have to say is not a very well trodden path um and yeah that was quite funny and then we then it suddenly became a bit real and we thought oh this might actually happen and six weeks later it did and it was just the most amazing whirlwind it was the most incredible thing and um you know I wouldn't have missed it for the world it was such a huge privilege to do and it was fun and exciting and totally overwhelming you know I knew nothing I ran for that election without even really knowing what an MEP did and so while I was racing around the Southwest campaigning and speaking at hustings and things, I was also at home reading all about the European Parliament and what I would do if I got elected and what the job entailed, knowing that actually I probably would never really do that job fully because I clearly wasn't going to be there for the long term. But yeah, and I think the experience was the same for, you know, the 16 of us were elected from the party. It was just amazing. And I think in two regions, we elected three Lib three Lib Dems were elected um so we had a surprise 
number three from the southeast and we had a surprise number three from london who neither of whom had ever expected that they would get elected and then martin from cheltenham we knew there was a possibility we would get two here but on election night it was quite close and um it was just so brilliant when he got elected as well and and it was really really nice for me to be able to go with somebody who had a lot more experience than me he'd been an mp for 10 years and um, we got on really well and and it, of course geographically it really helped that he was at the top end of the constituency and I'm at the bottom so it helped us kind of cover the bases a bit more and yeah it was just such an amazing experience we we had a blast and we were a really good team I mean we were quite an eclectic bunch of people but mm. we got on really well and we had I think four four or five in the team had had been MEPs before I mean obviously Catherine had been there all the way through but we also had Phil and Chris and Bill, so three more who'd been MEPs before. So there was a, quite a lot of advice, you know, quite a lot of experience on the team and then lots of us newbies. And um, yeah, it was just, it, it's quite hard for us now because things keep popping up on our Facebook feeds, you know, about one year ago you were doing this and yeah. we, we were in a WhatsApp group and we're still in a WhatsApp group and most of the 16 of us are quite active in that group and we still chat to each other. I mean, every day there's a message about something. So we, we still talk to each other a lot. And I think we went through such a such a weird and crazy and, you know, bizarre experience with each other that um, we did we did form quite a close group. And um, yeah, it's just been amazing. I mean, the end of the, the January was was awful, absolutely awful. It was one of the hardest things. It was certainly professionally, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done um, was sort of, being you know I think in total we had about 70 people if you included all our staff and we were all on one um, our offices were all on one floor of an office building so we had sort of a ring of offices and then lift uh, shafts in the middle and meeting rooms in the middle so it was like this sort of oval shape and you know everybody on that floor was going to lose their job and it was just brutal and a lot of the staff were quite young and really really anxious about what was going to happen next for them and um you know our MEP colleagues were just so upset you know they were crying and we were crying and I mean the tears you know for the last week were just sort of non-stop and you every, every day I walked along the corridor I would bump into somebody who you know was having a bit of a cry and yeah it was it was really really tough yeah and I think it's as well as kind of if you so if you're in that position and you and you think oh i'm going to lose my job on top of that you have something that you've kind of fought against for the past how many years four four years probably which is i imagine adds to the, the pressure or the pressure yeah. or the, the feeling emotion etc um yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, it's like so many different levels of distress you know from the very very personal because for all of us, it was just the best thing we'd ever done. It was fascinating and, you know, fun. And it was just an amazing job. And so it just felt really, really tough to, to be told, that's it now. You've only had seven months and you've got to give it up. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, you, you spoke about um, kind of being a, a newbie um, in, the, in the European Parliament. But you were made uh, the leader of the Liberal Democrats in the European Parliament yeah okay i mean how how was that how was that during those times um so catherine who had been there on her own for five years and had been through i don't know how many brexit extensions two or three um she was she was really tired you know and she she led us all in and and she was great and she 
you know, showed us the ropes and explained everything and, and got the group going. But by the time we got to October and, and, the, and the Brexit, the, the, that Brexit extension, she just couldn't really go through it again. And, um, you know, it was really beginning to take a toll on her health. So she said she was going to stand down after that, you know, at the end of October. Um, and then we, we had a vote among the group and um, there were going to be two of us putting ourselves forward, but the other person had to withdraw. And in the end, I was the only person who put myself forward actually and um, got voted unanimously in to, uh, to lead the group. So yeah, it, that was a real honor. It was great. It, it was, it was amazing. And um, I felt very um, humbled that my colleagues put their trust in me. Um, but I think a lot of people felt it would be good to have one of the, one of the newbies to, to lead the group because it reflected the people who had put us there, which were basically new members of the party um, who had joined because of the referendum. And, and that's what I represented in the group. Um, so yeah, yeah it, was, it was a real honor actually, huge privilege. Yeah, I can imagine. I can definitely imagine. I mean, work, so working in European Parliament, um, I mean, what was that like working under a proportional representation system? So that was great fun. And it's actually, um, it's surprising how well people from the different political groups actually get on when they, when they have to. Um, there was quite a lot of crossover. Um, so we had, so we were part of Renew Europe, which is the Liberal group. So for example, I was on the Environment Committee. So we had a group of people, I think 15 of us from Renew who were on the Environment Committee. The Environment Committee is huge, there's about 75 people in total. Um, so the way it works is, that, is, is you kind of, as Liberals, the 15 of us, we would have a meeting and, and you know, on a piece of legislation. So let's say um, chemicals legislation, fertilizer, um, you know, there was a lot of that going on and GM crops and stuff like that. So we have our meeting and we decide what our position is. And then, then the leader of our 15 um, goes to meet the leaders of all the other political groups who are on the environment committee. And then they sit down and they try and thrash out a compromise. So you've got, you know, the labor and the talk, the right wing group and the liberal group and the greens. And, and then you have your more extreme groups sort of at each at each side and they all get together and try and thrash out a compromise and then they come back and you discuss it and you debate it and and it goes like that so it's quite time consuming it's quite slow but it works really well and you find that one group will give something here if they can get something there and you know you realize that in the end compromise is not a dirty word and actually if people are prepared to be a little bit more generous in in reaching a reaching a compromise solution that you do actually come up with something quite good and you know one of the things people say about pr is that oh if we had pr here then ukip would have mps and yes they probably would you know maybe a couple maybe a handful but actually that's okay because what we saw in the european parliament was you have that big hemisphere and on the two outer edges, you have the, the sort of complete right wing nutters, you know, a lot of them come from Italy and Poland and, and you know, they're always shouting and, and that's where the Brexit party sat and they, you know, they're a bit mad. And then at the, right at the other end, you have the communists and Sinn Féin and, um, and, and, and their debates across the chamber were, were really quite funny sometimes because they're just, you know, complete polar opposites. But they don't really 
they don't really get anywhere because when you're trying to shape legislation, they find it very difficult to bring anybody else on board and create a consensus. So the whole art in a European Parliament is, is building a consensus for your policy. So if you come up with, with something that you want to push through, you have to get people on board to support you. And that means talking cross-party, cross-national divide, cross-groups, and, and, you, and you find the people who you can, you can um, sort of convince to, to, to support your policy. And that's what, we, that's what would have to happen here if we had PR here, which means all those barriers are broken down because it doesn't work if you just stick to your own party. And you have to talk to people from other parties. And, you know, so one of the weirdest things was that one of the far-right Italian parties who were really quite extreme on immigration were actually very green. And sometimes they would back legislation that was environmentally friendly because for some reason that that was one of their things that they were quite supportive of green issues. So you find you have these really weird crossovers and, and that's exactly what would happen in the House of Commons. And I know it already does because I know that our MPs are always talking to people on the Labour benches and the Tory benches, but it's all done very hush hush and it's behind the scenes. And last year when they kept having all those votes that were very, very close, there was a huge amount of discussion between parties and 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 you know people like Yvette Cooper were, were getting people on board with with amendments um, and it's such a dirty word in our parliament that they, they don't really talk about it very openly but it absolutely does happen and if we had a PR system there would be a lot more of that and then the more extreme people on you know the left far left wing of Labour and the far right of the Tory party they would become what's the word they wouldn't be as important because they would be on the fringes and the people in the middle right across the spectrum in the middle would all be working together to come up with good policies it's just it just makes so much more sense i think actually it's the it's the most important thing we can do to 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 resolve the mess we're in i, I think we absolutely have to do it so would you say electoral reform is the only way to heal the political divisions in Britain at the moment. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of electoral reform, and I think until we've got a proper functioning democracy, it, nothing's going to work. Nothing's going to work. I mean, on average, forty-nine percent of voters in this country are represented by somebody they didn't vote for. So that's nearly one in two voters. Whereas if we had a PR system, that figure can actually go right down to one percent. And I mean, the numbers are just astonishing. You know them, but you know, for the sake of people listening, so we got the biggest vote share rise in December's general election. So of all the parties, the Lib Dems got the biggest rise in vote share, but we only won 11 seats. And if we had PR, we'd have won 70 seats. And we would have clearly been the third biggest party in the House of Commons. We'd probably have had the balance of power or perhaps us with maybe the SNP. But the Greens would have had 12 MPs instead of one. And more importantly, even than that, the SNP would only have had 28 rather than 48 because they are really disproportionately represented. And all those figures, you know, represent a much more realistic share of our vote. And Boris obviously wouldn't have had a majority. So that would have been made quite a major difference. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think it's just time that we had a, a, a parliament that represented the way people vote. It's, it's, you know, if you have three parties standing in a first past the post system, 
then an MP can effectively be elected with 34% of the vote. I mean, it's, and if you have four parties standing, an MP could be elected with 25 point something percent of the vote. It's just not, it's not right. It's not democratic. And I think people feel really disenfranchised. You know, when you're in a seat where you've had a Labour MP for 100 years or 150 years, you know, what's the point? You know, what's the point of voting if you don't want a Labour MP? Because you know that you're just never going to be able to change it because of these entrenched safe seats. And, and you know, the other thing that's happening is the boundary revision that the Tories are doing. That's, that's going to help them as well because they're going to shift boundaries just a little bit which is going to make a huge i mean it's it's really quite nerdy but there's some amazing graphics online about how boundary changes can can affect the 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 vote share um so i think we really need to be aware of our democracy and you know the funny thing is people keep talking about rejoining the european union so one of the absolute basic things about being a member of the european union is you have to have democratic institutions that reach the um the European Union benchmark and actually I don't think ours do so you know we may not be able to even consider rejoining the EU until we've sorted out our democracy we don't have a a fully elected second chamber because we have all the bishops um, in there and you know the hereditary peers and we don't have a, a democratic lower democratically elected lower chamber so we don't actually meet the EU rules so it seems proportional representation is in a much better place than it was, say, I don't know, 10 years ago. I mean, um, Lisa Nandy was obviously supported it in the Labour leadership election. Keir Starmer, I believe. Um, He's friendly um, towards it. Yeah, I think, yeah, friendly is, is the correct word. And they both of them collectively um, achieved 75% of the vote in their leadership contest. There's just been recently a Labour campaign for PR, I saw. I can't remember what it's called. But... Yeah, I think it's Labour for a New Democracy or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, yeah. It right. just launched it, yeah. So, I mean, how has this change kind of pushed through? You know, I mean, I mean, you wrote, sorry to interrupt, you wrote after the general election um, that um, we need a movement that resembles that of the suffragettes to overturn our archaic and not-for-purpose electoral system. I mean, what, what do you mean by this? Slash, how do we force this, this change? <laughs> Well, I think there are several prongs, as with any good campaign. So I'm working with Make Votes Matter, who are a cross-party, um, non-party political campaigning group. Um, and they have sort of lots of different prongs to their to their campaign, one of which is to just raise the profile amongst the public. So people begin to understand what our electoral system is and, and what it should be. Um, and at the moment, we're talking about lots of ways of visually representing that so people can really get a clear idea of what we have and what we could have. Um, but also the Labour Party is absolutely key. So the Greens, the SNP, Lib Dems are all on board. You know, the SNP is really interesting because they are completely on board with it, even though they would lose a lot of their seats in Westminster because they still accept that it's a really unfair system. And I think that's, you know, that speaks volumes that they, that there is a party who would have half as many MPs who say, actually, we need to do this for the health of our democracy. The Labour Party, 75% of Labour Party members support PR, but the Labour Party as a whole does not. And that is because the Labour Party occasionally benefits from first past the post. And in 1997, when Tony Blair was elected, they did say they would look at it. And then as soon as he got that landslide victory, funnily enough, he just forgot all about it. 
So what Make Votes Matter is doing is working on individual constituency Labour parties to get them to pass a motion to say they back PR and, and hopefully there will be a groundswell of constituency Labour parties. Eventually there'll be enough of them that will put enough pressure on the party as a whole. To, they have to change their constitution at, at a Labour conference and of course there wasn't really a Labour conference this year. So the sort of general idea amongst the PR community is that if we can get Labour to commit to changing the voting system, then we all go into the election in 2024 with a manifesto that says, if we're elected, we will support the introduction of PR. Now, if you get all the other parties on board with that and they win the majority, between them win it more than half the seats in the House of Commons, then you could potentially have a motion, a bill passed in the House of Commons without having to go to the country in a referendum. And I think that's the crucial thing. We really don't want another referendum. Referendums are not a good idea. <laughs> um, so it has to be a very clear manifesto pledge saying, look, if you elect us, this is what we're going to do. And, and, and we have to get Labour on board with that. So there is a way to make it happen, but not without Labour. So it could take a little while yeah hopefully the next election potentially longer i think that i think the key is is that we just have to keep banging away at labor you know that if they want true equality they have to do this because we can't have equality until we have this and and you know they are the party that keeps talking about you know for the many not the few and and you know electoral representation should be for the many not the few and at the moment it is just for the few right so moving on last couple of questions really i mean it feels a little bit I mean, it has done since December, like the Lib Dems are a bit of a joke at the moment. I mean, even during the election, they were a bit of a vehicle for protest votes. I mean, where, where does the party go from here? What does the future hold? Well, <laughs> million dollar question. Um, I actually think the future looks quite bright for the Lib Dems. I think um, we have a government that is characterised by complete chaos and incompetence, um, you know, lurching from just reacting to things all the time. You know, there's no clear plan. There's no foresight. There's no, they, they don't see, the whole coronavirus thing has been such a mess that I, I think that coupled with a very difficult Brexit are going to cause a lot of very moderate, sensible thinking Tories to, to reconsider their allegiance to the party. Um, I think we, we all know that in December, our vote as Lib Dems was definitely affected by the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Labour Party and people did not want to put Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. And whatever Labour, however Labour spin that, I think that's absolutely a fact. It certainly is around here, the doors I knocked on, you know, nobody wanted to risk it. Um, so I think having Keir Starmer as a sensible leader of Labour will actually benefit the Lib Dems because I think in marginal seats where it's a Tory Lib Dem marginal, the Tories might be more willing to give the Lib Dems a try and think, well, if Keir Starmer ends up in number 10, that actually won't be such a bad thing, you know. Um, and I, I think people say, oh, why don't you just give up, you know, pack up your toys and go home or why don't you just all join Labour? But we're actually very different from Labour and I think, you know, we've got a new leader now who has to make it really clear to people how we are different. And, you know, the two, the two main areas, I would say, are that we are unequivocally a pro-European party. And, you know, we're going to have a massive old bun fight this weekend at our conference about whether we should have the word rejoin in our Europe policy or not. 
I actually don't think we should at the moment. I don't think it's healthy. I think we have to, you know, take the temperature of the nation and the nation has very clearly said, you know, we, you know, even if you take the PR argument into account and everything, Boris Johnson got elected and, and that he said that's what he was going to do. And, and I think we have to let it play out. And at some point in the future, when, you know, our job is to convince the public that, that, are, that we are better off in Europe. And that's going to take a while. And we have to get the public on board with that message before we start saying, right, you're all on board with that. Shall we go and rejoin now? And people will say, yes, let's try and rejoin. Um, so I think European, and we very clearly say in our Europe motion for conference that we believe our home is in the European Union and we want to work with our neighbours and Labour are not saying that. Labour are still absolutely sitting on the fence and Labour don't, you know, even Keir Starmer doesn't seem to want to come out and say, yes, we we believe this is the right thing for us. So that is one really clear difference. And people, you know, the sort of ardent Remainers are saying, oh, I don't have a political home anymore because the Lib Dems have dropped their commitment to rejoin. It's just absolute nonsense. You know, we are the most clearly pro-European party and we will always fight for European values. Um, and they should blooming well stay with us and you know help us fight for it um, and the other thing is that we are unequivocally pro PR which as I say for me personally is really important and then you know there's all the other things about liberty and openness and you know pro immigration and investing in the green recovery and, and all those things but you know lots of other parties have those strands but I think that combination of being pro PR and pro European makes us very different to what Labour is offering and you know, we have a place, we have a place, you know, we cannot have a political system with just two parties. That's archaic. You know, if you look at all, all the sort of highly functioning, well-developed European countries, they have a rainbow coalition. They have lots and lots and lots of little parties who all represent different nuanced versions of similar things. And we absolutely have to have that in our in our system and I think if we had PR the chances are quite strong that the Tory party and the Labour party they might even fracture you know they are grand coalitions aren't they really they span a whole spectrum of, of views so I think I, I yeah I don't think we're a joke I think we're in a really difficult position we don't get the media coverage we need we don't get the airtime we you know and why should we because we've only got 11 MPs um, so I think it starts from the ground up, you know, we work really, really hard locally. We do brilliant work on councils and, you know, we have to make sure that we elect really good, strong, committed, enthusiastic councillors who will then go out and help spread the message when it comes around every four years to general elections as well. But, you know, it starts on the ground. It starts with getting to know your community and being embedded in your community and doing really good things for your community and being known for that. And then, you know, that just builds the strength of the party all the way up. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. It'll be a tough few years. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. Um, I don't know about you, but it seems like Caroline isn't quite yet done with uh, with politics. Um, and just a reminder, this was recorded a couple of weeks ago, so a couple of things that were mentioned might be out of date. Um, and just to join us in a couple of weeks when we have an ex-Brexit party MEP. See you then. Here now with more news, debate and opinion.